It's the Beelis Daily on the new 105.5 Sports Live from the Spectrum Healthcare Partners Studios. And on the phone with us right now, he is the sports editor of the Boston Herald, formerly of the Lewiston Sun Journal, Justin Pelletier. Follow him on Twitter at jpel915. And Justin, down there in Boston, what is the reaction right now in the newsroom and the community to Josh Gordon's situation here? Well, I'll tell you what, I, it's, it's actually surprised me in a good way. I think the majority of people have realized that this is a young man that's got demons to battle, and I think for the most part the coverage has slanted in that direction, which is a good thing. Now, obviously there's the analysis from the football side and how you know it affects the Patriots going forward and stuff, but I think the preponderance of everything that's come out uh, in the last day and a half or so uh, really has been about uh, Josh Gordon and uh, his well-being, and I think that's a... A uh, credit to uh, to the folks down here, for the most part. Now, of course, you've got the. Uh, I think I think most of the conversation that went the other way and and condemned him was actually driven by um, uh, readers and talkers and call-ins and and the such and the, on the various media here. But um, the, the coverage itself, for the most part, um, aside from the nuts and bolts of what does this mean for the Patriots, really has been about. Uh, I know the Herald this morning. We ran a really good package on uh, high-profile. Uh, people, whether they're business people or sports folks, uh, and addiction. Uh, we ran a nice piece on, uh, uh, on things like that, and we also dove into the football aspect of it uh, on the sports side. But, uh, um, you know, nice to see that, that the coverage has been in the right direction on this, I think, is, is the message here. You know, the interesting thing, Justin, too, about, about addiction, uh, athletes are risk takers. And, boy, when you're addiction... They're risk takers a lot of times. Besides all the other things that go with what happens with addiction, and uh, boy, it's incredibly complicated. Oh, 100 percent. And and I mean, just never mind the pressures that you face on an everyday basis. You know, uh, add into that the money and everything else. And of course, Josh Gordon was a a young man who's had uh, this from the age of 13. I don't know how how much of a deep dive or how many of the stories you've seen over the last little bit uh, on him, but. Uh, I mean, he's a guy who admitted he was he was popping Xanax uh, and and uh, smoking weed when he was 13 years old in junior high school. He was, you know, he he'd go to uh, high school games uh, when he was in high school playing football, and he'd he'd see if he could play drunk. Um, he try he try to play drunk to see if he could still do it. Um, so you know, it started with a very from a very young age with with him and. Uh, it's one of those things where he had demons he had to, to, to try and deal with, and uh, he, unfortunately for him, was never able to deal with those in a manner that didn't involve uh, a substance that, uh, that, uh, that he put into his body. And it's, it's a sad situation, really, more than anything else, for him as a person, and you really just hope that he, uh, he gets the help that he ultimately needs. Certainly, and then I guess from that nuts and bolts perspective with the Patriots and what this means for them, on that, so kind of the other side of the coin, your thoughts on what what they do, kind of moving forward right now. Yeah, so the Patriots themselves are are, um, are faced with an interesting situation. I know a colleague of mine um, had an interesting take uh, in his column this morning uh, on this topic, uh, talking about uh, feeling like the Patriots kind of wasted the last eleven games in a sense from a football perspective because they've been feeding Josh Gordon the ball. Um, he's got 700 yards uh, plus uh, this season, et cetera. Um, and, and so the rapport hasn't necessarily been there with the uh, other receivers. And I don't necessarily 
wouldn't go that far uh, to say that. But at the same time, uh, you do have to wonder where those uh, extra yards, those extra touches are going to come from. Uh, but Philip Dorsett has basically been a non-entity for them uh, for a lot of this season. Um, uh, Chris Hogan has been uh, a non-factor in, in several of the games that, that uh, he's been available for. So it'll be interesting to see, in my opinion, how they redistribute, uh, because that's what they're going to have to do at this point. Obviously, you can't go out and get anybody. They have a lot of pieces there on the roster. To me, it's just going to be about how they redistribute those touches. Uh, James White's been quiet the last couple of weeks. Do they get him back involved in the offense a little bit more? I think that's certainly a possibility uh, for, for them. So it'll be interesting to see how they do it. Uh, I think you're going to see a, a heavier dose of, of Dorsett and Hogan in the passing game and White probably out of the backfield. Not necessarily a bad thing. They won, right? Uh, you know, the, the crazy stat of last week was uh, in games that James White had over or was it 12 touches, uh, they're 9-0 and when he had under 12 touches. Uh, they're 0-5. Uh, so, you know, he's a big part of, of what they do anyway. Um, so it'll be interesting to see going forward. I think that's really what you're going to see, though, is, is more Hogan, more White, and uh, a little bit of a changed game plan in terms of not being able to stretch the field as much, which, worked, again, worked for them without Josh Gordon. Uh, worked with worked for them uh, in spurts without Gronkowski as well. So we'll see, you know, what, what comes, but uh, I think that's where they go. And then uh, I know obviously the Bruins got that win over Anaheim last night. Um, were you able to check out much of that game at all? Actually, yeah, I went to the game last night, so okay. uh, I got to I got to see all of it. It was it was interesting to see. Um, you know, of course, the uh, the power play played a big part in that uh, for the Bruins, which uh, it has to, uh, given their current state. Uh, although it seems like the Cavalry is about to come back, all four players who have been missing uh, Miller and Chara and DeBrusque and Bergeron all skating this week, and, and some of them possibly with a return imminent as early as tomorrow against Nashville. So uh, they've got to be feeling good about that. But last night's game uh, really showed uh, how dangerous their power play can be, how dangerous those top players can be. Uh, but I think what impressed me the most is how much better the uh, third and fourth lines played. It was, you know, as, as one of my writers put it, it was kind of a boring game. It happened. <laughs> Uh, but it was a win, yeah. and I think you know sometimes you're going to get that, and that, that's part of that's a credit to Anaheim. They play that big power physical game a lot more than most other teams. They're still one of those holdoffs uh, in the league. They haven't gone to the smaller, speedy, skill, uh, straight up skill speed lineup that a lot of other teams in the league have, and so that's a credit to them because they like to slow it down and muck it up. Uh, and it was good to see the Bruins able to win in a game like that, especially without Chara and Miller on the back end. And it was the first time they'd beaten Anaheim in five years. That's uh... yeah, that's about that's about right. It was nine straight <laughs> games before last night. So and they only play twice a year. So that's about right. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I don't know if that's just uh, matchups or not, but that's crazy. Um, well, I think it's that big physical style. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they... Oh, I think that's exactly what it is. You know that the the, the physical uh, nature of of Anaheim and the style that they play, and they've also always had good goaltending. And they did last night. I think Gibson was fantastic. Uh, that really could have been six to one or seven to one. Uh, and on the other end, Halak played a stellar game when it was still tight as well. Uh, a couple of uh, highlight reel saves from him, one on a push-off from his left pad to his right there on a, on a post, and the other uh, stellar glove save on what I thought for sure was an Anaheim goal. And at the time, that would have, I believe, tied the game. I think it was one nothing at the time. So uh, really great to, to see that. Uh, both goaltenders playing very well last night. But part of Anaheim's success over the years, they've had, uh, they've had goaltenders that have done the, the trick. 
uh, Freddie Anderson uh, with Toronto now, but he always was a thorn in the Bruins' side over the years. And uh, John Gibson now one of the top uh, U.S. born goaltenders in the league. Yeah, I, it's funny. I was just going to ask you the same thing. I, I, I think the goaltending this year has been fabulous. Uh, we always want to blame when they lose. We want to blame it on the goaltender, and uh, but it seems to me <laughs> oh, Tuka, Tuka's, been a, Tuka's been a target for years. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, the big contract, I think, too. Uh, yeah. And we got spoiled. Tim Thomas had those two great years, and people can't forget it. Uh, but I think Halak well, is. Cup. I mean, it's, it's, I don't. I don't think he'd be remembered as much for two great years had he not also helped them win a cup. No, that's right. That's, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think Halak has been a great addition. I think he's going to push Tuker, and he's also going to give him a chance to rest. And then in the playoffs, you figure out if they make it, who's the hot goaltender, and stick with them. Oh, absolutely, and, and that's you know that's what Halak used to bring uh, when he first came into the league back in the uh, in the late two thousand. Uh, he was pushing at one point, if you remember, he was pushing Carey Price so much in Montreal. There was a stretch, uh, hard to believe, about ten years ago, when there were people in Montreal that thought. Let's trade Carey Price because we've got Halak. Yeah. And it's hard to think of because Carey Price just won yesterday, in fact, got his 300th career regular season NHL win. Wow. I mean, this is, a, this, is, this is one of the best goaltenders of this generation in Carey Price. And, and you had people, the passionate fan base in Montreal about 10 years ago, wanting to possibly give away Carey Price because Halak pushed him and played so well in that situation. And so this is a guy who's got a track record of doing that. He's had some some awkward spots where he's landed in, in some backup roles where he had no chance uh, to really compete. And then last year was just a lost year with the Islanders, uh, given his contract uh, as a starting uh, goaltender that they then buried in the AHL. Um, so he's kind of been dealt a, a top hand uh, a little bit in a couple of past spots. But this is a great situation for him. There's really no, no great pressure. He almost made it back-to-back shutouts last night, just that uh, one goal against. He's allowed one goal in two games now for, for him. So uh, to push, and Tuca's not... The people love to vilify Tuca, uh, and in some pressure situations, sure, he's fallen down, but statistically speaking, he's been one of the top ten goalers in the league every year for the last five or six years. And then tonight, uh, switching over to basketball a little bit, the Celtics hosting the Bucks. The Bucks at 21-9, and the Celtics at 8-12. and Celtics actually favored by a point in this game. What are your thoughts on what they need to do to beat Milwaukee here tonight? Well, the Celtics have been an interesting case of, uh, of uh, how many people are too many people in terms of talent this season. I think that's been a big piece of it. You know, Brad Stevens has always had the opportunity to manage the underdog. And, and even at the end of last year when Kyrie goes down uh, and, and you're out uh, uh, Hayward all season long as well, and then they make it to the, uh, to the Eastern Finals last year, that's another example of him leading an underdog team this team came in as a favorite this year and they uh, have not looked anything like it uh, but part of that I think is trying to find an identity and now we're getting to the point in the season where maybe you start to worry a little bit I know we had this conversation I don't know if it was you or with Maddie uh, earlier in the season uh, maybe 10 games in everybody was kind of wondering oh my gosh they're only 500 and um, at that point I was on the record as saying look give them 25 games uh, the first 25 games because of the schedule the brutal early road schedule because of trying to gel as a new team, giving them 25 games, they might go 15 and 10, 16 and 9. That's that's kind of what I thought they would do in those first 25 games. That's just about what they did, right? They were 15 and 10 at one yeah. point during their their uh, their uh, run to 18 and 10. There with those those uh, eight straight wins. Uh, but now is the time of the season where they really need to start picking up and looking like that number one in the East, and they're not. And that's a little worrisome. Um, 
you know, having a few guys out with injury and, and whatever is not helping. But I really think at some point they've got to figure out how to get uh, a starting lineup together uh, on a consistent basis and, and go with it. And I think when you saw Gordon Hayward coming off the bench uh, for a little while, I think that's when they looked their best. It was, it was uh, Jalen Brown was out and Gordon Hayward was coming off the bench. And that was during that eight-game win streak. That's what was working for them the most. And so maybe you start there and work around uh, whatever else you can find. But Milwaukee's, you know, not out of nowhere. They were in the playoff last year, and they gave the Celtics a, a run to seven games last year, if you remember. So uh, it's not like they're coming out of nowhere. Uh, and they're another year older, and they have another year more seasoned. So uh, not necessarily surprised that Milwaukee's in the conversation, uh, but more surprised that the Celtics are a little bit lower than you might have thought at this point. Yeah, you know, the the Celtics have always had a tradition of having that six-man. Started way back with Ramsey, then Havlicek, McHale. They've had some tremendous guys off the bench that made a difference. And uh, Matty's been talking for a while now that he thinks it should be specifically Jalen Brown and Haywood coming off the bench. And that gives that second unit a real lift offensively. Oh, sure. And those two, they complement each other well also. And, all, and you've got to figure out who in the top unit complements each other well, right? So um, if you've got Kyrie working well uh, with Marcus Smart or with, with Marcus Morris, uh, if you've got uh, those guys are, 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 are gelling together, um, then that's kind of what you, what you, what you want to go with. Um, you want to find the best units that are going to work the best together. Uh, you see that all the time in any other team. Sometimes it's not necessarily just a collection of the best players but it's, it's trying to piece together the players that work best together. We've been talking a lot about University of Maine up here, obviously, because of uh, Harris Simiak sure. uh, leaving for Minnesota. I mean, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the move from going from a head coach to like a defensive assistant at a Power 5 school like that? Well, I'll tell you what, that's a great move for, for, for Coach H. And um, to, to be fair to him, uh, he would have been uh, to have that opportunity and to turn it down uh, would probably have been pretty foolish. Um, <laughs> you know, to, to, to be fair, he's been at Maine for what eight years now total. Yeah, um, three as the head coach. Um, he's he's earned his way through there. There wasn't at University of Maine. To be fair, that's probably the height of. I mean, yes, you want to continue to go and try to get a national championship, and you want to continue to return to the Final Four. But he had nothing left to prove at that level. And, and when a Big Ten school comes knocking at your door, you don't turn it down. Um, because public records are what they are, we know that his, his role as a defensive assistant uh, at, at the University of Minnesota uh, is going to pay him more than double what he was making at UMaine. But it right. wasn't about the money. Yeah. It wasn't about the money. You know, if he wants to continue to become a possi- possibly become a head coach at the, at the uh, Power Five level, uh, getting into the Power Five is, is the first uh, – first step because you've got to you've got to overcome a ton of nepotism you've got to overcome a ton of retreads uh it is it's that way in any coaching fraternity right you see that at the pro level you see it at the college level how many times do different coaches kick around they fail one place and they surface at another uh things like that and so it's hard to break into that power five level as it is uh so if you get a chance to do that and your goal is to coach at that level then you have to take that opportunity you just do yeah and money's not the issue that being said, he was the lowest-paid coach in the CAA. I mean, does Maine need to up their game in terms of what kind of salary they're offering the potential head coach uh, when they go on this search here? I don't think so. I think you've okay. seen a lot of good coaches. I, I you see a lot of good coaches come through Maine, right? You've seen 
yeah. uh, uh, many assistants move on. I don't think it's a bad thing. It works that way in my industry as well. Uh, I don't think in in, uh, in the print journalism world that you see it all the time. I don't think it's a bad thing to be known as a, as a school or a place uh, of employment that readies people to become that next, to go to that next step, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing for Maine to be known as a team that's tr- that churns out next-level coaches. Uh, that means you're going to get some really good up-and-comers coming through because they know that using Maine as a stepping stone will possibly move them on to bigger and better things, and, and, and you enjoy the ride while they're there. Uh, Coach Cosgrove was, was a throwback and, and someone who um, stayed there for a really long time, and, and UMaine was kind of spoiled in that, in that realm. Um, I kind of see that way. Um, you know, a lot of people were, were that way at, at certain places of employment as well. You know, someone's around for a long time. You think, oh, they're going to be here forever, and all of a sudden they move on to a bigger and better place, um, or at least a bigger place. And, 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 you know, you see that a lot in, in the corporate world. You see that a lot. Um, in the sports world, and to be known as that uh, organization that can prep you to be uh, an even better uh, coach is not a bad thing for you, Maine. So, from a money standpoint, no, they're getting they, they have a budget. They're a publicly funded institution. Uh, should the, the highest paid person by the state of Maine in the state of Maine be the head football coach? I don't think so. It is in Alabama. It is in Ohio. In Ohio. The highest-paid public employees of those states are the football coaches right. at those respective schools. I don't think Maine needs to go there. Maine doesn't have to be paying two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars to. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. It just doesn't. Uh, they can still get good value of a coach on an up-and-coming basis um, at what they're paying. So, in terms of their current search for a coach, who are some people? Are, are there anyone in? in in, in particular, in your mind, who might be a good fit or a certain type of person, I guess, up and coming, obviously, is the, is the first thing you want, I imagine, not some person who's been around a long time, perhaps? or. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on who wants to build on what, co- what Coach H has started yeah. and, and built there. Um, you need someone with his forward thinking and his energy. Uh, I don't know that you necessarily discount anybody who's been around for a while, and we talked about this last week, right, um, with, uh, with my analogy with, with Coach McGraw. Uh, the soccer coach at yeah. Lewis in high school. Um, and when we were talking about Spencer Emerson moving on to the JUCO level and, and, and uh, Coach Nicholas being done at Lewis in high school, um, same idea here, right? You want someone who's going to bring an energy and a, and a recruiting power to that position uh, that's going to help continue to build on what Coach H has done. But you don't necessarily – there's no age restriction necessarily. It's a mindset and mentality uh, of, uh, of uh, using the players to the best of their ability and recruiting the best players – that fit into the scheme, and in doing so, Maine has, has found this past year a handful of players that do have pro- professional potential, and they did so by recruiting outside of the uh, the traditional uh, uh, hotbeds, and they had to because the traditional hotbeds are typically scooped up by those uh, FBS teams. So that's the kind of person you need in that spot is someone willing to think outside the box and move the thing forward. Uh, as far as specific people, I'm not well enough into that world to know uh, I know some people were talking about the defensive coordinator, uh, but he moved on uh, himself to James Madison in right. the same breath. Um, so uh, beyond that, uh, I, I really don't know of anybody else offhand that I would think of uh, personally, but uh, I'm sure that they're going to find somebody uh, in short order here. I know they want to move pretty quickly. So Right. You know, Justin, you were talking about the stepping stone. I mean, think about it. It was uh, Murphy, Tevens, Ferentz, 
I mean, we had a, a series of coaches that came in that stayed two to three years, and I thought Maine was better for it. I mean, you hate to see them come and go, but they really do Bobby bring Wild, some. Bobby Wilder's another one in that conversation as well. I'm sorry? Bobby Wilder's another oh, one. Oh, yeah, that is, sure. Well, the head coach at ODU now who, yeah. you know, uh, was, was with Jack Cosgrove up there for quite a while and, and went there. So, yeah. from Madison, from mind you. So we got Christmas coming up next week. I imagine the Boston Herald has some stuff that you've pre-written, perhaps for the for the holidays. What's the, what's the coverage going to be like this upcoming week there in Boston? Well, you've got. I mean, Christmas is a, is a fun time because everybody's trying to take their vacations and be with family and stuff. So you do try to get to work advance a little bit uh, on on some things. We have a, uh, a a wish list, a Red Sox wish list coming up from our uh, from our beat writer on the Red Sox. So what should they want in the in the new year, and uh, what should we look forward to? from them uh, in, in the new year. So we've got some Red Sox uh, stuff coming there. Of course, the, the NFL doesn't take a break, right? So we'll have full, uh, full Patriots coverage all week next week as well. Um, uh, on Christmas, you'll see the report card from the latest game on, uh, on Sunday uh, from Celtics land. They actually play on Christmas. Right, right. Uh, so we'll be, we'll be having our regular Celtics coverage uh, for that. And also uh, on, the, on the Bruins side of things, there's going to be a, kind of a report card a halfway through the season what uh, what should we? It's not really halfway officially, uh, but just kind of a, a of an evaluation at this point of the season. What to uh, expect going forward from the Bruins and what we've seen and, and what how do we grade kind of like forwards, the defenders, etc. We're going to see that uh, in there as well. As uh, so, uh, it's 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 a busy week. Even though it's uh, of course Boston College is in a bowl game on uh, on December 26th as well down in Dallas, uh, playing Boise State there in the. Uh, oh, good uh, in, the, in the, one of the bowls, I forget which one offhand. There's too many of them to, to keep track of. <laughs> like 42, I think, or something. <laughs> I think it, no, I think it's the Surf Pro Bowl, I'm pretty sure. Okay. That's <laughs> uh, um, on the 26th down there. It's being played at the Cotton Bowl uh, in Dallas. So. Yeah, I've been what to that. Stuff going on? That bowl game keeps changing names, but I've actually been to that bowl game before at the Cotton Bowl. It's it's interesting to be at the Cotton Bowl, but it's it's not actually the Cotton Bowl. It's just some other bowl. Right, somewhere. well, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. You're at the you're at the at the physical Cotton Bowl, but yeah. it's not the Cotton Bowl, right? So. Right. <laughs> yeah, the Celtics do play the 76ers on Christmas. I mean, the NBA has made a lot of hay out of playing on Christmas, and uh, but. Most of my life, I'm pretty sure. I mean, do you like that, that the NBA has a pretty heavy-packed schedule on Christmas Day? I mean, if, if their marketing says that it sells, yeah. uh, I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's Christmas is a family day, and some families do enjoy spending Christmas watching basketball, and that's to each their own. And if they've found a market for it, um, it, it, it's, you know, tough. In the industry, you know, it's hard. Um, I, I worked... I've never had a year in which I haven't worked at least half of the officially recognized holidays, uh, religious or otherwise. Right. Uh, it's just not what we do in this business. And so many of those people that, that are in that business working that day, uh, I mean, the broadcasting crew and everything else like that, they're used to it. Yeah. Uh, does it stink sometimes? Of course it does. Uh, but you're used to it. Uh, and you, and you, you know, get, you know, and, and again, if there's a market for it, if they've found that it's working, um, I don't begrudge them for it at all. Um, the NFL doesn't not play on Christmas when Christmas falls on a Sunday. They play right. um, as well. They just, you know, it, it happens every six years, but that's that's what happens. Um, and they play, you know, Christmas Eve, they play. Um, you know, the NFL does. Uh, and the NHL takes a break. Um, but uh, on most other holidays, they do not. Uh, and so, I no, I don't begrudge them whatsoever. I think it's a great thing if fans are going to keep watching and tuning in. 
uh, and going to these venues on these days. They make great, they make great Christmas gifts if you're going, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, true. So it, it, you know, so there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think they've they found a niche and they've exploited it and in a good way. You know, not using exploited badly there, and and uh, they're doing it to their benefit. All right, Justin Pelletier. Follow him on Twitter at jpel915, sports editor at the Boston Herald. Thanks so much for joining us here on the B list. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it.